good morning, you guys. It is always a joy to be back with you. It really is, especially on the first Sunday of Daylight Savings. This morning was a bit rough. It was, indeed. Um, yeah, the sun wasn't up while I was driving here. It was crazy. And then I drove into the parking lot. I saw that big bus that's out there. I thought, oh, man, we got a road band here. <laughs> uh, it's a blood drive. Okay, well, it was close. <clears throat> anyway, but it's always really fun to see uh, my old friend Torin and Jordan and the whole team here that together. Uh, you have a great church. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I, I actually have visited a lot of churches, and I have a lot of my students. It's Calvin Sim who are working in churches. So I'm kind of... Tilsey is an amazing place. It really is, but just saying. Anyway, <clears throat> so... Um, yeah, I, I was sort of stumped on the whole thing about uh, what kind of an egg, what is that? What kind of an egg? How would you, if you were an egg, how would you, I thought of my answer. If I wasn't a Christian, I think I'd be a deviled egg. <laughs> Don't you love deviled eggs? Those are so, how do they, why do they get called deviled eggs? What's up with that? Angel eggs? I don't know, but it just seems wrong. So wrong. Well, you've been studying the uh, early events in Jesus' life as he begins his ministry, and he begins really his career, his life, um, from his baptism through his temptations. The theme that you have going is, well, you can't have a kingdom if you don't have a king. So therefore, how is Jesus central as king in that entire story? It's a really good question, and a really enormously important question. Every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they understand that Jesus is baptized, and then he is tested in the wilderness. And of course, the test in the wilderness is really a very basic test. Some people think all three tests are the same test. And that is, will Jesus betray his own calling to be God's son, his own role that God has for him inside of this kingdom? Will Jesus have integrity? That really is the test in many ways, but it takes very three different forms. Um, some people think that actually, since we are to be like Jesus, that testing is also a part of our own life as we relate to Jesus the King. So therefore, as we begin our lives in Christ through baptism, then the question is, how much integrity will we have as we continue to live out our Christian vocation, our life, okay? So it's a really very basic thing. Now, this is not the beginning of Jesus' ministry, however, <clears throat> The testing, the baptism, that's not his ministry. Every gospel writer is stuck at this point. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What they have to do is they have to answer the question, how do I raise the curtain on the great public story of Jesus' ministry? Imagine they're sitting there with all kinds of stories on the desk, maybe stacks of them saying, we know he goes to Galilee, he begins in Galilee, he does all kinds of miracles, exorcisms, all kinds of things, but I want to start my story well. I want to have a prelude. I want something that is really representative of the complexity of what Jesus is going to do. So therefore, what they want is an opening scene. And each gospel writer kind of comes up with their own opening scene. They want to encapsulate the story. They want to set the tone. They want to establish the characters. They want to set up the problem and the threat and the resolution. That's what a great prelude does when you establish a story. You want to map the terrain of the story that's coming up. So when you look at the gospel writers, each of them try to work this out a little bit differently. 
So Mark, for instance, begins right after the testing, he begins with um, an exorcism, casting out Satan. Well, why? What's that? Mark wants you to know that when Jesus is establishing his kingdom, he has got to overthrow the kingdom that thinks it's in charge. So there is battle to be done. Okay, I get that. Matthew opens his story by telling you Jesus did all kinds of miracles, but I want you to focus on Jesus as a teacher. The great teacher, like Moses, has come back to the land. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. John starts his gospel after all of this with the miracle of Cana, where there's a wedding and Jesus turns water into wine. Okay, that's how he wants to start it, because that has all kinds of symbolism for the arrival of the Messiah. He delivers, you know, gallons and gallons of wine. Okay, so anyway, what I have here is each gospel writer trying to create a prelude. It sets the tone, it introduces the characters. So I decided to bring with me this morning what I think is the best prelude that's ever been done in film. Take a look at this. The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost. For none now live who remember it. It began with the forging of the great rings. Three were given to the elves, immortal, wisest, and fairest of all beings. Seven to the dwarf lords, great miners and craftsmen of the mountain halls. And nine, nine rings were gifted to the race of men who above all else desire power. For within these rings was bound the strength and will to govern each race. But they were all of them deceived. For another ring was made. In the land of Mordor, in the fires of Mount Doom, the Dark Lord Sauron forged in secret a master ring to control all others. And into this ring he poured his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate all life. One ring to rule them all. Is that a great prelude or what? Why don't we just quit right here and watch the rest of the movie? <laughs> it's a great movie, isn't it? But what have they just done? They've set it up for you. You got the rings, you got the one ring. You've got the elf. Everybody wants to be an elf. I want to be an elf. Anyway, there's elves. They're dwarves. Too much hair there. Anyway, dwarves. They're humans that are so corruptible. And then there's Sauron who makes that one ring. And so you know there's a drama here. You know there's going to be a conflict. You're going to, what? How is this going to follow the story of the ring? That's what a great prelude does. It creates a map for the story that is to come. Okay? So each of the gospel writers are doing the very same thing. They're asking, how can I create a map? How could I do something like that for the life of Jesus? Now, Luke 
is the only gospel writer that actually has a story from Nazareth that no one else has. He has this story on the desk and he picks it up and he says, even though I know Jesus began his ministry with various miracles and things in Capernaum, this is the story that I want to make as my curtain raiser because it represents everything that is to come. It is foreshadowing for the entire story of the gospel. It tells you the entire gospel in one paragraph or two. It is poetry as well. So let's go ahead and take a look at this. We're looking at Luke chapter 4, and we're going to begin at verse 14. All right, so here we are. Now, I have typed this in a, in a peculiar way because I have to explain something else to you. 2,000 years ago, when people told stories, they used something called mirroring. They love mirroring. Let me give you an example of mirroring. This morning, I got up, I got in the car, and I drove to TLC. I saw Torin. Hey, Torin. I said hi to Torin. <laughs> and I did the worship service here with you. And then I'm going to say goodbye, Torin, <laughs> get back in my car, drive home, I guess go to bed. <laughs> Anyway, that doesn't sound right. But you see what's happening there. I begin to tell the story. There's a turning point, and that is the worship service, and then I move my way back. So you could actually number it. One, two, three, four, three, two, one. You see how that goes? Very standard. It's easy to memorize. People used it all the time 2,000 years ago. It's a very sophisticated thing. But the thing you want to remember is right at that turning point, that is what you want to watch. That is where the emphasis is. So here what you can see is I've colored some of the parallels for you. It says here in Luke 4.14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, North Israel, and a report went forth through the whole neighborhood about him, yes, and he taught in their synagogues. Now you can see how that's bold and green up on your screen. Hold on to that. He was praised by all. And if you look up at line two, you can see a report is going out everywhere about him being praised. Yep, it's about the same thing. And he came to Nazareth, which is a village in Galilee. Look at the top. That is where he had been brought up. Okay, so right away, Luke tells us he knows that Jesus has already been out there preaching. He's already been out there doing all kinds of things. But now Jesus has made a decision to come back home. Miracles, exorcisms, these have all given him a reputation. He has been teaching in synagogues. He's become enormously popular. He astonishes people by the way he teaches. He astonishes people not simply because of eloquence. In fact, the stories of the Gospels never talk about Jesus' eloquence. That is not something they would refer to, Greeks and Romans like that. Instead, what astonishes people is what he says. It's the content of his message. He surprises his audiences again and again and again, and he'll do so here. He says controversial things about God's grace and what God wants to accomplish inside of the world. Okay, all right, so Lucas told us he knows about this sort of the this, this, this story of Jesus so far, that he has a reputation, and Jesus decides to go to his home village of Nazareth, all right? So let's take a look at this. It is also one of these mirrors, but because the story is a bit long, um, oh, I'm sorry, I've got a map. I did throw a map into this. Forgot to put that up there. Look, when you're doing a prelude with the Lord of the Rings or something, they put maps up. If you don't know the difference between a Shire and Mordor, you're in serious trouble, right? 
The hobbits do not live in Mordor, just so you know. So anyway, the same thing is true here. And the geography of this is going to be really important to our conversation. At the top end of the Sea of Galilee, you can see the village of Capernaum. That is where Jesus will base his public ministry. But he's not from Capernaum. He's actually from Nazareth, of course. That's where he grows up. So here, Luke tells us, he decides to go to his hometown of Nazareth. And I think because of what happened here at Nazareth, that's why he doesn't base at Nazareth. He's going to leave and go back to Capernaum. For his whole life, he'll be known as Jesus of Nazareth, but actually he doesn't base there. It's really curious. All right, now let's look at the story and see what happens. So therefore, what you have is um, he enters into the synagogue. Um, this is the next slide. There we go. Now, I've had to split this because it's kind of a long story. So here's the first half of the mirror. So he entered as was his custom, into the synagogue of Nazareth. Now, wait a minute. Remember that the previous section was all synagogue, was at the very center, so now this will be framed by the synagogue. So he entered, as was his custom, into the synagogue. He stood up to read. Hold on to that. They gave him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, I have to tell you, there were no books in that day. This idea of having a book which is bound on the side with folios like this, where you could turn the pages... No, that didn't come around yet. In all of the synagogues of Judea at this period, there were scrolls. So actually, they had a custodian for the scrolls. They kept them in what they called an ark, and they lifted out the Isaiah scroll. Undoubtedly, Jesus asked for the Isaiah scroll. And so therefore, this custodian brings him the scroll, and he turns it to get to his place. So they gave him the scroll of Isaiah, opening the scroll. He found the place by turning to where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now what Jesus is doing is reading from Isaiah 61, one of the most famous passages in the entire Old Testament for a Jewish audience in a synagogue. This is where the Messiah is being announced because that phrase anointed me is the Hebrew term for Messiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has made me the Messiah to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and to the blind, the recovery of sight. Now look at number eight. That is the turning point that is so essential to the blind recovery of sight. And now it's going to begin to work back and mirror what we just said. Okay, so here we go. Here's the second half. And to the blind recovery of sight, and to send out the oppressed ones in freedom. Do you remember earlier we just talked about the f giving freedom to those who are prisoners? And to proclaim, earlier Jesus had said, to preach good news, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And earlier we talked about how the Spirit of the Lord is now bringing about the year of the Messiah. He closed the scroll... Earlier, he opened the scroll. Do you remember this? Then next, he gives it back to the custodian. Remember earlier, the custodian had given him the scroll of Isaiah. He sat down, okay, and earlier he stood up, and the eyes of everyone inside of this synagogue were on him. Now, there are a couple things that we can observe about this, and the first thing is, 
Notice that it begins and ends with synagogue. That's how the whole story begins and ends. And at the very center, you can see there is a story of the blind not having sight. And so you might say to yourself, okay, so his ministry is a healing ministry for those who can't see in the villages. And yet, if you look at the very end of the entire structure, you can see the reference to eyes. So therefore, if Jesus has a ministry of healing those who are blind, what are the blind eyes he needs to work on? And it so happens they may be in front of him inside of the synagogue. Okay? Now, I'm wondering if you guys in the back could actually pop over to the picture of the synagogue. I think I just skipped over it. There we go. Thank you very much. Um, I brought with me a picture of what is probably the, mo the best preserved uh, synagogue coming from the era of Jesus that we have today. This is, if you know Israel, this is the synagogue of Gamla. It is, if I was in a car and I was down at Capernaum, I could just drive up there in about 10 or 12 minutes. It's really very close. Jesus went to all of the villages right around Capernaum. Undoubtedly, Jesus preached in this uh, synagogue right here. And you can see that it actually has a square. They would not sit the way you and I are sitting with a person up front and then you all facing me. No, you would actually sit around the perimeter for discussions. And when the person is invited to speak as Jesus was, he would then be invited out of the crowd because he is back, you know, and he's back in his hometown. So they would say, please speak. He would stand on a thing called the bima um, and then he would stand on a stone. There is a stone there that represents that. Do you see it? And that would be in the middle. Then he's reading from the scroll, and then there's a major conversation all around him. That's the way it works in that period of time. All right, so therefore, you've got the setting. Jesus is reading from the scroll. He's here inside of um, uh, Isaiah 61. <clears throat> now, what Jesus is actually doing is really controversial. Isaiah 61 was really, really popular in Jesus' day. It was used for the anticipation of the Messiah. Isaiah 61 gives you this promise, this beautiful promise that God is going to return to Israel and bless Israel and restore all of Israel's fortunes. And the Gentiles are going to be judged. It was a description of life after the exile when Israel went off to Babylon. So it's filled with hopefulness. So Isaiah 61, it is really a sacred passage. It is one of the favorites in all of Israel. So Jesus is picking up something everybody knows intimately. It is the description of Israel's national privileges. It is a description of, I would think of it as the reversal of Israel's fortunes. So in some way, God is going to come and take care of us, our nation, our people, our race, our culture. We are going to be the ones who are blessed. Now, here's what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't simply roll the scroll to Isaiah 61 and begin reading, which most people think he does, but they haven't looked closely enough at the story. Because actually what Jesus does is he reads the first two verses of Isaiah 61, and then he starts rolling back to Isaiah 58. And then he rolls back to 52, 42, Isaiah 42. And then he rolls forward back to 61. 
he's messing with the passage. It's like if I was leading you right now in the Pledge of Allegiance, and in the very middle, I changed up some of the words. <laughs> I don't like those words. I like these words better. You'd probably say, would that be okay with you? Not so much. I learned that in the first grade. Don't mess with that. You can't do that. Now, here's a slide of the very same story. You can see it right here. And in this, you can see in green, this is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Then if you look at verse 7, that is Isaiah 58. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the oppressed. Whoa. And in yellow, the blind having sight, the oppressed ones are going to have freedom. That's 42, chapter 42. Jesus is actually expanding, manipulating the message. His message is not simply reading a favorite. What he's trying to do is construct something different. The good news, according to Jesus, is going to be found in the mosaic of his reading. It is a patchwork, and he wants you to hear it carefully. The good news is going to be about generous blessing. The good news of his ministry is going to be about the poor. It's going to be about prisoners. It is going to be about the blind, the oppressed. It is not about Israel and its national privileges. The receivers of God's grace are going to be everywhere. It's what Jesus won't read from Isaiah 61 that is so shocking. National privilege? My goodness. That's what every nation wants. The Messiah will not bless a few. He is not coming simply to bless one nation, one culture. The Messiah will bless all. It is not about national blessing. It is about personal blessing no matter where you stand. These are the themes at the center of Jesus' first public sermon. No revenge on the Gentile, no rebuilding of Zion, but instead a reconstituting of the world of his kingdom that will be filled with God's grace. Now you can imagine, when they hear this, notice how it says, they were praising him initially, and then in this story, all of their eyes are fixed on him. What are you doing? What are you up to? How can you insert Isaiah 42.7 right into the middle of 61? How can you do that? You're changing the meaning of the passage. The crowd knows it. So he returns the Isaiah scroll. And you probably could cut the air with a knife. They're wondering what's next from this man. Now, what happens is that Luke tells us that, well, okay, everybody wants to like Jesus. Everybody wants to say, this is going to work out. It's going to work out. So let's keep reading. So he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Remember, he just read the Messiah passage from Isaiah 61. And everybody spoke well of him. They wondered at the gracious words which came out of his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? They're all saying, yeah, he's one of our kids. He rode his bike on my street. We know him. He grew up here. 
Isn't it awesome that we have someone who is claiming to be the Messiah coming from our Nazareth? It's amazing. Then Jesus said to them, no doubt you are going to quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we heard that you did at Capernaum, do also now in your own country. So what they're saying to Jesus here is, look, okay, so you have just read Isaiah 61. I get it. You want to make this claim, but we hear that you are a miracle worker. So therefore, please do a demonstration of power here in front of us so that we can see evidence. This is when Jesus says this very famous sentence. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own country. That's where he says it. A prophet, when he is elsewhere, is going to be celebrated. But a prophet, remember he says the word prophet, comes now into his own town and people simply don't know what to do with him. Now, what happens here as a prophet, he's just been described as a prophet, Jesus drops two bombs. Two bombs inside of the Nazareth synagogue. Let's keep reading. Um, in truth, Jesus says, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. When the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there came a great famine over all the land, Elijah was sent to none of them. None of who? Who was, who was it that was experiencing this, this trouble? Israel. Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. What's that? We'll explain. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. You see the symmetry, how it's going back and forth, Elijah, Elisha. None of them were clean, cleansed. None of who? The Israelite lepers. But the only one cleansed was Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was filled with wrath. They are not angry because Jesus has used the language of Isaiah 61 and identified himself as the Messiah. That's not it. They're cautious when he starts interpreting Isaiah 61 by moving around in the scroll. They're staring at him, wondering what he's up to. But now they are furious. They rose up and put him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him off the cliff. But passing through, he slips away. So here what we have is this remarkable arrangement, this incredible two bombs. Now, I have to put up a map again just so you can see what actually is going on here. Here's another map. You can see there is Nazareth. That's where he is. Capernaum is on the north top side of the Sea of Galilee. But there's this business about this, this woman who is named Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Where is Sidon? It is actually north, way north of Israel. It's not in Israel. It's in Phoenicia. And then there's this other guy who gets healed with Elisha, who is over in Syria. And that's the other area on the right, the arrow going up northwest, northeast. Syria is way north. Are you kidding me? 
So in other words, Jesus is saying the generosity of God is so enormous that he is wanting to you to recognize that God's interests go beyond the ethnicity and nationalism of Israel. Here, look at the next slide. <clears throat> in fact, in the worldview, you might say, of the average Israelite at this time, you built an imaginary wall right across northern Israel. North, those are the Gentiles. Phoenicia, Gentile. Syria, Gentile. But we live south of the wall. The Gentiles living in the north, they are repugnant. They are foreigners. They've got the wrong religion, the wrong race, the wrong restaurants, the wrong culture, the wrong language. Certainly God does not love outsiders. No, he can't. But notice, not only did Elijah and Elisha bless the outsider, they withheld their blessing from the insiders. Oh my gosh, really? It is no wonder they want to kill him. They want to toss him from this cliff. Here, take a look. I've got a picture actually of the cliff at Nazareth. This is, if you go to the east side of Nazareth, Nazareth is in the mountains and it's kind of in a little depression. The village is in the depression. So you go up to the top of this cliff and that's what you've got. You can stand up there, actually. There's a park up there. It's kind of nice. None of the Jewish people tell this story, but all the Christians do. <laughs> um, and it's like a 2,000-foot drop. It's pretty crazy right there. This is where they tried to kill Jesus. Now, I'm not surprised at all that this happens, that this is how the story ends. This is Luke's curtain raiser. Luke is trying to say to us, yes, this is what happens when Jesus steps onto the stage of Israel, clarifies not only who he is, but what he wants to accomplish and the reaction is shocking. It'll cost him his life. That is, that is, that is an anticipation. That is looking forward to what's going to come at the very end of his story, which will be the cross. All right, so therefore, what do we have? What is the, what is the meaning of this whole thing? And what does Luke want us to take away from this? If you uh, know a Jewish rabbi, he's going to know um, a quote that is very famous among Jewish rabbis today. Um, it comes from the late 1800s, but I love this quote. Um, it's, it's so tattoo-worthy. Anyway, it is Rabbi Israel Salenter. He's from Lithuania. Uh, he died in 1883. Okay, here we go. Your rabbi is only your rabbi when you want to run him out of town. Your rabbi is only your rabbi when you want to run him out of town. Torin is only your pastor when you want to send him to Lansing with a one-way ticket. In other words, if there is no prophetic voice in the rabbi, he really isn't a rabbi. In this story, Jesus qualifies if we don't feel the sharp edge of Jesus' teaching here, if we don't feel a little discomfort, Jesus is not our rabbi. It was Jesus' prophetic voice that nearly got him killed. Isaiah had been used for centuries to say, God wants to prosper our nation, 
Our nation has a divine purpose in the world. That is us. Our race is superior. Jesus says, no, God wants to prosper the poor. Isaiah had been used for centuries to say, God wants to bless our citizens. Jesus says, no, God actually wants to also bless the foreigner and the Gentile, even Syrians. Can you imagine saying that in modern Israel today? God loves Syrians. Oh my gosh. Isaiah had been promised to, had promised to give sight to the blind. But Jesus implies in his message, the blind are not out on the streets. The blind are sitting in this synagogue. The blind might be those whose eyes are fixed on him and they are the ones who cannot really see. What Jesus is doing is cracking that connection between nationalism and divine blessing. God's blessing is bigger than any one location. Do you think this is a relevant theme in today's America? What do you think? Oh yeah, you're going to throw me off a cliff in a minute. So in this grand opening scene, Luke wants us to see clearly how dangerous this gospel is. He wants you to see how dangerous this Jesus is. He does. His message, his mission is about the poor, the prisoner, the blind, the outcast, the foreigner, the widow, the destitute. His mission is about those who are living on the margin. Those who are sick who need the physician not those who live at the center and say, I can see, and frankly, I don't think I need a physician. The good news is about God's grace for those who live outside. Wow, so we can see that when you do this in the first century, and you do it today, it's not going to be easily accepted. It won't be. Um, a couple of years ago, I had one of my students, um, former students, uh, invite me to Laredo, Texas. Um, uh, just an amazing, really gifted uh, young man who uh, is from South Texas. And uh, in Laredo, he had a ministry, a high school ministry with like, I don't know, seven or 800 students. And he asked me to come down and speak. Like, I am so high school. It's like, really? What am I doing here? So anyway, Torrent should have been down there. Anyway, so... Anyway, there I was in, down in Laredo and spending time with the students and spending time with him. And it was a, good, it was a really great time. Um, had more sweet tea than I ever could imagine. Laredo is 97% Latinx, Latino. It is 97%. And my second night there, my student said to me, Dr. Bridge, you need to know this, that 30% roughly of the students that you're speaking to are undocumented immigrants. One afternoon, I found myself in the middle of the soccer field talking with about 15 of the leaders of the whole ministry. These guys, these kids were so kids. They were like 17, 18. They were so sharp and they loved Jesus so much and they were doing such incredible things. They were the small group leaders. They were the teachers. They were everything. I was so inspired by them until my student said to me, half of those kids you just talked to are undocumented. And there I was back in the Nazareth synagogue. Does God love Syrians and Phoenicians? Does God love the undocumented? Is that true? 
who knows about the politics of this mess? God loves those who are in front of me despite their history. I came back from that trip. I came back from the trip, and I was so jazzed by just having this experience, you know. And I was telling everybody about this, and I mentioned the undocumented piece, and you are not going to be surprised, perhaps, when I tell you this. Someone said to me, yeah, but when you found that out, shouldn't you have called the police and had half of that team leadership arrested and deported? Does God love the Syrians? Does God love the Phoenicians? Jesus loves Laredo, Texas. I have another friend of mine who I work with. <clears throat> he is a New Testament professor at Calvin. Great guy. His name is Mariano Avila. Um, he is from Mexico City. He's been teaching at Calvin for about 25 years or so. He's really fascinating. I love doing culture stuff with him. Anyway, um, so as, as a Mexican, he... <clears throat> He, uh, uh, he has a great ministry on the west side of Grand Rapids. There's large Latino communities over there, really large, and Mexican especially, okay? So he has had all these connections over there. He tells me heartbreaking stories about when he drives with his wife into the west side of Grand Rapids, he gets pulled over by the police and is forced to show his identification just to make sure he's, not, he's an American. He's profiled all the time. Anyway, this is why West Grand Rapids has got all the best Mexican restaurants. Totally. Um, here, here's a call out. Write this down. El Globo, the balloon. El Globo Tacos. The, the, the guy who owns it, Mr. Cordoba, is from Mexico City. He was a chef. Mary's Tamales on Burton. You know Mary's Tamales? Oh my gosh. Two women start this business and they're making tamales right they do it in their kitchens. This is the real stuff over there. Anyway, so there are house churches all over the place in West Grand Rapids in these Latino communities. They came to Mariano and they said, we don't have leaders. We don't, we don't know, we're fine leaders. And so Mariano decided to start a Spanish-speaking school. We don't, they don't want degrees, they just want to be taught. How do I take care of the people in my small group? How do I teach from the Bible? What is the Bible? How do I be responsible in leadership? And so Monday and Tuesday nights, we have our Latino program Monday nights, it's a buffet of Mexican food, <laughs> the best food ever, just show up for the food. Anyway, and then they all teach. We are training these people. And I can tell you what, many who are in their community and many who are in their leadership are? Exactly. Does God love the Syrians? Does God love the Phoenicians? This is the sharp edge of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is dangerous. Discipleship is going to take courage and integrity. So therefore, you're going to have to choose at some point when you become a disciple, you're either going to reject him or you're going to accept him. And if you reject him, you'll want to throw him off a cliff because you don't like his message. But if you really accept him, he's going to take you places you didn't anticipate going. This is what it means to meet the surprising Jesus. He is out of step with the mainstream. He has a heart for those on the margins. And that's why it'll take courage for you to go there. You will either love him and follow him 
or when he surprises you and you find him impossible to bear, you will want to discharge him from your life. In this curtain raiser, Luke is saying to us, it's your move. It's your move. I am about to tell you the story of a Messiah that won't be easy to take like you think because he's dangerous. But if you follow him, you will go amazing places. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, we do ask that you would give us the courage and the integrity to become the kinds of disciples who follow this dangerous Messiah. Lord, help us to love those whom Jesus loves, especially those who live on the other side of those walls we have built in our own life. We pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. amen.